The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. So I think it was, I don't know, like 15 years ago, there was a survey that was taken and it was survey given to teenagers and they were asked this one particular question if they could meet any person who has ever lived or living now who would they like to meet and the number one answer was Paris Hilton and I remember when I read that I thought that will be so unbelievably out of date in five years and we are glory starved people and to think that the greatest person if you could meet one person in the whole world you'd pick somebody that is just exceedingly relevant at the time but as the Bible says all flesh is like grass in all its glory like the flower of grass and the grass withers and the flower falls our glory is so unbelievably fleeting. And the Bible talks about their glory and their, their, the problem with the sinful people ourselves is we set our minds on earthly things and it says their God is their belly, their end is destruction, and they glory in their shame. They're actually things that we actually should be ashamed of, that we're glorying. And here in this chapter, we are shown an unbelievable greatness of glory. I remember some years ago, my brother called me. He was all excited, and, he, and my brother's a pilot. He flies wealthy people and um, corporate. And he says, I flew the great one. I flew the great one. I'm thinking, you flew Jesus? Like, you know, who, who, who? I was like, who's the great one? And he was a bit perturbed when it came, Wayne Gretzky. I, I, you know, I flew the great one. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. And when you think of what Carnegie Simpson said, this was over 100 years ago. He was a layman and a writer and pastor. Also, he said, instinctively, we do not class Jesus with others. When one reads his name in a list beginning with Confucius and ending with Goethe, we feel it is an offense less against orthodoxy than against decency. Jesus is not one of the group of the world's great. You talk about Alexander the Great, Charles the Great, Napoleon the Great, if you will, but Jesus is a part. He is not the great. He's the only. He is simply Jesus. Nothing can add to that. He is beyond our analysis. He confounds our canons of human nature. He compels our criticism to overleap itself. He awes our spirits. There's a saying of Charles Lamb that if Shakespeare were to come into this room, we would all want to rise up and meet him. But if the person of Jesus was to come into it, we would all bow down and try to kiss the hem of his garment. And so let us consider Jesus afresh. And I'm actually going to read the last verse of Mark 8 and then read through Mark 9, verse 1 to 13. But in context, Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me In my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. 
So he's speaking about this glory that's to come. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they saw no one with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, help us. This is a hard text to understand, to get our minds around it. But Lord, we can't get our arms around you. You are too great and too glorious. You are the abiding fascination of angels who are never bored. And so forgive us if we are bored in your presence, for we see not, for we are so blind unless you lift the veil and show us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would open our eyes that we might see your glory and that we would be transformed by it. For it is, Lord, our health. It's the greatest thing that we look forward to, to see your glory. Help us, Lord, we ask in your name. Amen. So as we consider this passage, if, you wanna, if you're into outlines, there's a bunch of C's here. There's the context, which is the verses that are leading up to the transfiguration, which is the end of chapter 8, verse 38, and then chapter 9, verse 1, and Jesus makes this prediction that some will not taste death until they see the, the glory of God after it comes with power, and then immediately he says, and after six days, so he's going to, here's the fulfillment, here it is. That's the, the context, but the context leads to, uh, then we see the, the change, which is verses two and three, the transfiguration, and then you have the conversation, verse four, Elijah and Moses, and then Peter's confusion, the confusion, verse five and six. Then you have the cloud and the voice speaking from the cloud, verse seven, and then you have the charge as they come down from the mountain. So there's a lot here. Um, so the, first of all, the context is, we, the bigger context is Peter is, we, 
Jesus, you know, heals this man in two stages, and we keep coming back to this. You know, I see men like trees walking, and, and Jesus heals this man in stages as a parable to show us that we see, but we don't really see. And we see in part, but we don't see in full. And then we get all the several examples of Peter getting it, but not getting it, right? So he says, you're the Christ, but then he wants to take him aside and say, you shall never suffer. And his idea of messiahship should mean only glory, never have to suffer. And in this chapter, we see Peter, once again, he gets it, but he doesn't get it, right? So tabernacle, cloud, fulfillment, eschatology, great fulfillment of the kingdom. Let's make them all equal. Elijah and, and, and Moses, they're all glorious too, so let's make three tabernacles. For he didn't know what to say. They were terrified, you know. He, they see three people in glory, in their glorified state. And once again, I see, but he does, I see men like trees walking. He doesn't really get it. And so the Father, God the Father, has to speak down from heaven. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. That should remind you of the reflection quote where Moses had prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 that there's going to be one coming after me, and to him you shall listen. There's a new Moses, there's going to be a new Exodus, and they're talking with Jesus here about his Exodus, is literally what the Luke's version is. They talk to him about his departure, and it's this Greek word for Exodus, his departure, his suffering. And so it's all leading up to the cross. And so the context is Jesus knows that there can't be anything more uh, scandalous than a cross. Nothing's going to be more shameful. Do you want to go public that you're a follower of Jesus who's going to a cross? I mean, we saw how hard it was for Peter. He didn't even make it into, far into the courtyard. No, I'm ready to die for you until this little servant girl, just a little servant girl, we don't even get her name, but three times he denies him because he's ashamed of what's happening to Jesus. And Jesus is telling the disciples, I have to go to the cross because he's got to deal with our shame and all of our sin. He's got to get us back into the presence of God, back to the garden, back to new heavens and new earth. How are we going to get back to paradise, back to Eden? How's it going to happen? It's the Lord of glory. He's going to have to leave all his glory, come down here and take on all of our shame, all of our sin, leave it all behind. The whole idea of, of Philippians 2, of kenosis, is the idea of emptied himself of his glory. He removes all of his glory. He veils his glory and becomes and takes on flesh. He's still God, and yet he, he adds flesh to himself. There's no subtraction, there's just addition, addition of flesh to Godhood. But his God, his deity is, is veiled. It's hidden until here. It's breaking out, and you're getting a picture of what Jesus will, will be like in his glorified state of his glory, that, that truly all along he's, he's had the, the deity it's not like he has to go into the phone booth and, and, and become, you know, change from Clark Kent to Superman, or he doesn't say, you know, where's my super suit, and have to go change and be, he has the glory. He, in and of himself, he is God. He became what he was not without ceasing to be what he already was. Do you get that? He became what he was not, a human being without ceasing to be what he already was, God. He's the God-man. And he takes on flesh forever to 
to himself. And the disciples are getting a glimpse of his glory. And, and he's showing them this so that they will have courage. So he gives them the charge. Don't tell anybody about this till I've been raised from the dead. And you're going to need this someday. Yet you've seen my glory. <coughs> and it's going to be enough. And so we see that Jesus is giving the disciples here something that they will need <clears throat> to show them of his glory. And when he's transfigured here, it's this English word metamorphosis, where we get the English word metamorphosis. <clears throat> and we're told a couple times in John, a couple of these interesting prayers that Jesus prays in John 17. We've considered these before, but think about these afresh. Jesus, as he's going to the cross, he prays to the Father, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world existed. We call that pre-existent glory. Where was Jesus before he became a human being? He was in the presence with the Father, fully glorious. And now he's asking that he would have that glory restored. Well, we're getting a glimpse of the glory right here in Mark 9, of the preexistent glory and what the glory will look like when he returns in power with his holy angels, Mark 8, 38. He's showing you what it's going to look like. Six days later, he's showing them what the kingdom and the power is going to look like. They're getting a foreshadowing of what, it's gonna, what the end game is going to be. And so he prays at the end of John 17, Father, I desire they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. What does Jesus want for you more than anything? I mean, we're just a flower quickly fading. You put your glory in man. I mean, I have seen some of the people that I have most respected and most looked up to in ministry. And I see them aging. I've seen Sproul on oxygen going around in a, in a motorized chair and he's like this hero of the faith for me. He's in glory. And I've seen others like that. David Paltson was another hero of mine. I see him speak at, at General Assembly, he speaks to all these thousands of people, and then I see him get on the plane, and they put him in a wheelchair, and they wheel him to the front in front of all the people in the airport, and he's sitting in, in a wheel, and now he's in glory. But he, I'm like, you're kidding. Like, these, these people are so great, and yet they're, they're flesh. They're weak. They're just like a flower. They just fade. Jesus doesn't fade. What he wants for us more than anything is to see his glory. That is the abiding fascination of angels. That's what the saints are doing in glory and they are fully satisfied. You need this glory. You need to see this more than anything because the only thing that's gonna help you and give you the ability to die to the glory of this age and all, and, and to suffer until you realize that this is the glory that we want, and that's the glory that's going to happen to us. I mean, the reason Peter's confused here is because Elijah and Moses, we see that the dead people don't die. 
He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And how are Moses and Elijah doing? They're doing pretty well here, aren't they? They're so glorious that Peter's tempted to worship him. You see, this is where Lewis, in his famous sermon, and I would just say, if you've read it, read it again. If you've read it, read it again. The Weight of Glory is the best sermon that was ever, that I've ever read. And I read it two more times this week, and I'm still only getting like parts of it because it's so glorious. This is what he says. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature. If you say it now, you may be strongly tempted to worship or out say horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the all and circumspection proper to them that we shall conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all plays, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their lives, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And Jesus speaks about them shining like the light of the sun. That's what Moses and Elijah are doing. You see, it's this glory that's not just for, you know, I mean, all of creation is waiting for what? What is creation waiting for? It, it describes it in the in pregnant and in the pangs of the creation is, is waiting and longing for the, re, the revealing. It's the revealing of the glory of the children of God. They're waiting for our glory so it can get its glory. And the only way it can, we can get our glory is Jesus had to give up his glory and show us his glory and come and take our shame, which is just the opposite of glory, which we've all been glory seekers after everything else, licking the dust of the creation. And we've sought everything but God. And so Jesus has to come and show us the way and leaves his glory, goes to a cross, so that he could get us back to glory. So creation could regain its glory, so the sons of God, the children of God could regain glory. And you're getting a glimpse. It's just you're looking through a little hole. It's the, you know, you're blinking, you're getting a glimpse that, that the veil of the tent is being lifted up here. And Jesus is breaking out of his, his, his glory is, is happening. And it's the Revelation 1 picture It's the Daniel 7 picture where the Son of Man coming in his glory. Well, that's Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where the Son of Man is being presented to the Ancient of Days and to him is given a kingdom and and power and glory. And people, everybody's worshiping the Son of Man. That's, That's Daniel 7. Well, that's Jesus and that's Revelation 1 where Jesus appears to John and John falls on his face as though dead because he sees his eyes burning like the sun. He sees the glory of Jesus. This is what the disciples, are, Peter, James, and John, are getting a glimpse of. And so what you're seeing here is like, 
you know, as a pastor, you're kind of overwhelmed. You know, it's like, which tune are we going to play this morning? Do I play the prophet, priest, and king tune? Because is Jesus a prophet in this passage? Is he, is he not a prophet? Is he not a priest? Is he not a king? We could take three weeks and, and look at that, and we could play that tune. Or we could say this is the best of biblical theology. Biblical theology couldn't be any better right here. And biblical theology is you, you see the theme of Jesus from the Old Testament, and it's all leading up to Jesus, and we see he's the new Elijah, he's the new Moses, he's the better than. He's, he's pointing to them, and they're, they're all pointing to Jesus, and they're talking about his departure, and they had both suffered and then were, had weird death encounters, and Jesus is, is greater than both of them, and so he's the better Moses, he's the better Elijah, and you're seeing that. You've got the best of biblical theology right here, but you've got the best of systematic theology. You've got Jesus, and we see preexistent glory, taking flesh to himself, his glory busting out. You've got the greatest of systematic theology, the beauties of Jesus in the, in the twofold state or nature of, of being fully God, fully man. Two natures, one person forever. It's, it's all right here. And then you've got this theme of glory that runs throughout this passage. And so I'm just trying to take it in and give it to you. But I want you to see is that Jesus is the fulfillment of what Moses was pointing to. Moses had said in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It's to him you shall listen. Well, when Peter gets this, and now his eyes are opened after Jesus is raised from the dead, he preaches in Acts 3. And he quotes Deuteronomy 18, 15 because he remembers from the transfiguration. Oh, listen to him. He is the fulfillment. He's the greater Moses. He's the one that all the prophets are pointing to. He's the point. And so when he preaches, he says, but God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. He thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see, and then he says, um, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet for you like, like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul that does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And so Jesus is this new and better Moses. And, he's, and the exodus that, that Moses brought out was wonderful because he delivered the people from bondage and captivity to sin. But Jesus does something better. He delivers you from bondage and captivity to Satan who has blinded the minds of unbelievers to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so Peter, in his confusion, in his seeing but not seeing, what is his mistake here of his not quite seeing? He wants to, to give all three equal glory. He wants to build three tabernacles. Let's have one for each and let's worship. And something's deeply wrong with that. He's confused. And so for us, I think it's very easy to, 
as Jesus warns a couple times in the Gospel of John of where are we looking for glory? Do we see but not see? Listen to what Jesus says a couple of these verses. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals, creeping things. You see, it's very easy to run after the wrong glory. And yet, it's, it's the glory that we're, we're running after. C.S. Lewis, in that classic sermon, The Weight of Glory, he says, in speaking of this desire, and he's talking about glory and the desire of this far-off com- country, he says, we, we find ourselves even now, he says, I feel a sh- certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each of you. The secret which hurts so much that you take revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it's a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past, but that's all a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would have found that the, the thing itself, but not the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to, its, to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty uh, was located will betray us if we trust them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our past, are good images of what we really desire, but if, if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself. They're the scent of a flower we haven't found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. What's he getting at? You see, we, have these, we all have these built-in longings, And what Lewis is getting at and what the Bible is getting at is it's for these eternal longings to see the Lord of glory himself. And all the glory that this world can give is because he's the one who's made it. And it's all a reflection of his glory. And in Lewis's, you know, the problem is our desires now are not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures. We fool around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot, mention, cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. And so then he talks about this idea of wanting to to see this glory, to get to the other side. And he says at present, we're on the outside of the world. We're on the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they don't make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are wrestling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And so that's what we're longing for, is this glory. 
And the Bible says things like this about this glory, that not only will the Lord himself be glorious, but he shares his glory with us. So the Bible says things like, I consider that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us, but it could also be translated in us. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For now, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we're sown in dishonor, but we're going to be raised in glory. We're sown in weakness, but it'll be raised in power. And we all with unveiled face now, we behold the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The way that we grow now as believers is sanctification by contemplation. It's by beholding the risen Christ. As Moses beheld God, and we read that the chapter today was 40 days up on that mountain. You remember what happened when he came down? What happened when he came down from that mountain after 40 days? He was glowing. They had to put a veil on him. But as, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, they had to put a veil, he put the veil on him because it was a fading glory. It wasn't a permanent glory. But we are getting a permanent glory. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What's unseen is eternal. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses them all. This is what gives us the strength to suffer, to take on hardship in this life, is knowing there's greater glory to come. This hope of glory will be ours. We're told when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Huh. And as Lewis talks about, you know, it's this, this we're all going to have this great examination. We're all going to go to the inspection station. We are all going to be inspected. And we will either hear, good, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And he will approve of us. And, then, and he talks about in this sermon how we will know it wasn't anything in and of ourselves. It was all to his glory. But what do we long for as children of God? It's kind of like the person you look up to the most, if you were just to try to give it a, an analogy to this life, and, and Lewis does a better job in his sermon, but we long for approval of significant people. So if you're a player... Like, I can just remember playing baseball, and I never thought I was good as a baseball player because the people in front of me that I'd seen play for years were so good, and they seemed like they had stronger arms. And I remember one time my coach just said in passing, he said something like, are you kidding me? You're one of the best, play You're one of the best center fielders I've ever coached. And I tell you that because I've never forgotten the comment. Because all of a sudden now I was ready to play center field because my coach and all these players that were so much bigger than me, but he told me, you're one of the best. And he's an older guy and he's saying, you're one of the best. I'm like, all right, put me in coach. I'm ready to play center field, you know, because that was significant because it was your coach. So when you as a parent give affirmation to your son or your daughter and you affirm them, there's something very satisfying in that. But to have the approval from your Father in heaven, 
that when he says, this is my beloved son, that is the very glory that he is going to give to his children. This is my beloved daughter. This is my son. I love them. That, that's, what, that's part of what the glory is going to happen. And so Paul, Peter can say things like this at the, at the end of 1 Peter in chapter 5. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. He's a partaker. I'm, I'm, I'm part of the sufferings. I'm witness of the sufferings, but we're going to be partakers in this glory. When the chief shepherd appears, you, shepherds, will receive the unfading crown of glory. Huh? We will get an unfading crown of glory? After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. That is glory. And you give all the glory to him, but he will glorify you. That's what Jesus is in the business of doing. And he's on his way to the cross to to do the first half of the mission, which is to suffer, to be rejected. And when he's saying, listen to him, listen to him when he says, I've got to do this. I have to suffer. I have to be rejected. I have to be killed. But on the third day, I'll be raised. It's going to happen. You see, listen to him, listen to him and all these things because he's coming back. He's going to be in the glory with his father. So don't be ashamed of him in this life. His affirmation of you is greater than any glory this world can give you. So don't be ashamed of him. Take the hits if you have to take the hits because we're God's children now and what we shall be has not yet appeared. But when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure this is the glory you were made for don't settle for the substitutes and run after all the things that you think are going to make you great and glorious it's fading this isn't fading it's forever and ever let's pray Lord Jesus, you are our prophet, our priest, and our king. You've come to preach and show us the way. You came as a priest to suffer and die. And you're the king who's raised in glory. And your glory, there's none like you. To every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God our Father. May we who have heard We who have seen, we who have taken part in this, may we not reject it and turn away. May we love your glory more than any of the glories of this life. For we ask in your name, amen.